Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. China is emerging as a global superpower able to contest with the United States throughout the world. Its growing assertiveness is fueled by its economic success, in part due to favorable trading terms with the United States. Now that the Trump administration is negotiating to rework our trading relationship with China, a light is also being shined on China's growing military prowess. What are China's overall national security ambitions, and how do they impact the nations around it, or the United States? Are we being drawn into what some call a Thucydides trap, named for its Greek author? It's what happens when a rapidly rising power threatens an established ruling power and conflict ensues. In 11 of the 15 cases, when this has happened in the past 500 years, the result was war. With me to explore our relationship with China are my returning guest, retired Rear Admiral James Stark and Dr. Stephen Halper, both deep subject matter experts on China. Jim was president of the Naval War College and has extensive Naval Fleet command experience throughout the world. He has been a senior advisor on political military strategy with both the National Security Council and the Navy Staff Command. Steph, a professor at Cambridge University, is the author of The Beijing Consensus and China, The Three Warfares. He has served in the White House, the State Department, and is the author of many major research studies for the Department of Defense. If you enjoy this conversation, I hope you'll subscribe to The Bill Walton Show on YouTube, iTunes, or any of the other major podcast platforms. Jim, Steph, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. Well, let's kick it off. Um, what are China's overall national security ambitions, and uh, how do they impact the nations around it? Well, I think that um, China's principal objective is to retain the rule of the Communist Party and to ensure a measure of stability domestically. And that means uh, a growing economy, jobs at the middle class and lower class levels. Uh, it means a, um, uh, an agreement, really, to move to dominate their region, which they're now doing, uh, and uh, uh, China has both regional and global aspirations. Regionally, they want to dominate. Globally, they'd like to move to a position in which the U.S. is pushed out of the Western Pacific, in which China dominates the South China Sea, and uh, in which they emerge as a superpower, essentially, mm -hmm. in 2049. Mm-hmm. And we're moving into the 100th anniversary of the communist uh, of the creation of the yeah, uh, yeah. People's Republic. And the decade, 2020 to 2030, according to the Chinese, uh, is going to be a decade of confrontation with the United States. Hmm. And uh, at some point, we ought to talk about what the U.S. objectives are and mm -hmm. what we can do to counter this. I think we ought to also look at 
some of the uh, historical antecedents of this policy. I see you have a book over here, Never Forget National Humiliation. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's one of the prime movers in China's current policy. Uh, historically, they've surrounded themselves with uh, buffer states around them. Today, that consists of Manchuria, Mongolia, Xinjiang, Tibet, the jungle areas of Yunnan. Uh, but 200 years ago, they stopped their naval developments, and they were their maritime frontier was yeah. not well defended, and Western navies were able to come in and, starting with the uh, the first Opium War in 1840, were able to subjugate China, not just along the coast, but they drove their uh, ships deep upriver into, into, into the interior of China. And China has vowed that they would never let that happen again. And so they're now in the midst of a, a major campaign to expand both their navy and also their other forces that could, can push out into and, and control the East and South China Seas, their bordering maritime areas, and then beyond that into the rest of the world. Yeah, that's what they call gunboat diplomacy, where their inland wat waterways were controlled by the Brits and the Americans. That's, that's right. right. That's you know, I think a history, yeah. let's, let's go back a bit, because one of the things that I'm learning about is China's century of humiliation, which they talk about. Correct. And this is, never forget, national humiliation. And you mentioned 1840 and the Opium Wars. Up until 1840, China saw itself as what the middle, the, central, the middle kingdom, the middle kingdom. That's right, and uh, that, unequaled by any other yeah. entity on the planet. And for 3,000 years, that was how they saw themselves. They and were then 1840, power. the Brits showed up. The Brits showed up and uh, very consciously attempted to addict the population to opium, which was coming up from India. Uh, it was a very sinister policy. And uh, the Chinese fought to try to prevent this and limit it. And in the end, uh, they, they succeeded. But uh, it has left a deep scar. And the Chinese are uh, now trying to rejuvenate the country uh, to return to its, its prior preeminence. And, they, and the century of humiliation ended 1945, 1949, with the with the communist revolution. Uh, I say 1949. Yeah, yeah. The, the, when the uh, communist, communist party came into power. Well, one of the theories about and of course, the course, in 45, when the Japanese surrender. Yeah. Well, the Japanese, or if the Chinese don't like us very much, they like the Japanese <laughs> even, even less, less. <laughs> because in 1937, rape in Nanjing, and you know everything they did Absolutely to the Chinese during brutal. the war. Yeah. But the one of the things I'm trying to get a handle on is the Chinese Communist Party, because what I understand is that Mao was very much a dedicated Marxist, class warfare, bringing people up, by the book, yeah. Marxist. Also a very charismatic leader, so it almost didn't matter that he was a Marxist right. because he was Mao. Now, with the mere mortal running China, although I'm not sure Xi sees himself as a mere mortal, they've had to evolve, and they've gone from being more of a Marxist uh, uh, strategy, Marxist strategy to one of really uh, talking about supporting the middle class and bringing up standards of living, which is utterly not Marxist. And they're also talking about uh, rejuvenation, national pride, all that. Yeah. And that's, that's the glue that's holding the party together? Well, you need to, to remember that um, the party is a network. It's a large collection of 80 million people who all benefit from knowing each other, working with each other, doing contracts with each other. And the party has 
tilted now towards the market, market mechanism, capitalism. Mm -hmm. It wants to include that kind of activity alongside of the party's discipline. So you have a state-dominated or directed market economy. Very powerful. I think an important part of that is that it's a recognition of the fact that, that Chinese, China's power and its ability to reach its international goals is highly dependent upon its economic wealth and prosperity. Uh, in addition to that, that rising economic prosperity is going to create uh, greater satisfaction among the Chinese populace. So as they see themselves moving from this lower class into a growing middle class, they're going to be happier with their current government, despite the fact that they don't really have real elections and that they're subject to the whims of a lot of petty bureaucrats within the, within the Chinese Communist Party. But to the extent that they, can, that they have over the last 20 or 30 years, really had an amazing expansion of their economy and are now a real true global power in that sense. Uh, they've been able to uh, support their goals and they see that that is the path to reaching their uh, is, global is, 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 is the Communist Party operationally any different from the emperor? I mean, it's an authoritarian one-party rule with no traditions of, of, of factions no, I think being you're allowed. quite right. I think it's very similar to other authoritarian structures. Yeah. Um, it, it's, um, the party is no longer, as you both said, strictly Marxist. It's a um, party which has modified its Marxism. It doesn't have, for example, Mao's uh, ironclad commitment to um, cultural revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, to backyard furnaces, uh, everybody makes his own iron pots. No, they're not that way anymore. They are encouraging people to develop through capitalism and investment and be disciplined in their direction by the party. So it's a hybrid sort of communism. So those of us that hope that opening up the market with China would make it a more liberal democracy uh, that's proven to be wrong. Absolutely, but, been the, a but the party, but the party's adapted. I mean, they're not. It, I used to, I, I used to believe that the Communist Party, the ideology was so bad that it would be overthrown. But they've adapted. That's one of the great things about China is that they're very flexible. They adapt very quickly. Yeah. And they have in this case to, uh, to you know, to to the power of the market, to the fact that the economy can grow very much more quickly. Yeah. through capitalism. To their credit, I think they're very practical, very common sense in their approach to these things. So they, yeah. they see what works and what doesn't. And even though they are uh, loosening the reins on the economy and encouraging private enterprise and so on, they still are dependent upon state-owned enterprises. The Communist Party owns a lot of, a lot of the, the Which they industry. Subsidize. And they subsidize all of that. That can be a strength and it can also be a weakness. Just, just to say with the party one, more point before we turn to the military issues. 80 million people, maybe it's, I think, maybe even a little bit more now, yeah. um, it's ruled by a Plitboro of 25 or so members. Right. And then there's a standing committee of seven, yeah. of which now Xi is the preeminent member of the standing yeah. committee. And don't forget that Xi is now president for life. He yeah. is no longer subject to the five-year terms that had traditionally uh, cap the chief of state in China. He's been he's been designated as the president for life. And I think he's packed the Politburo so that there's nobody young enough to succeed him. Yeah, 
But on the other hand, I think that also, as we discussed the last time we met on this, that's caused some internal problems. Not everybody is convinced that that's the right way to go. Um, to have somebody announce himself as the, uh, the president for life uh, means that nobody else has a path to success and that uh, they feel under pressure. So I don't think that Xi has completely consolidated his mm -hmm. control quite yet. And the, six, the 80 million people, that's what roughly 5% of the population. And what about the other 95%? Where are they in the, in the scheme of things? Well, are, are there people outside the party that would like to see change? There are yes, there certainly are. And, and you see, those are the people that, that they're putting in jail in, in Xinjiang. They're going, they've got a million people in concentration camps. This is the corruption campaign? No, it's not the corruption campaign. It's, it's popular dissatisfaction for nationalist reasons by non-Han non Chinese uh, okay. citizens of China, as well as problems within, some problems with, within the security services. And it's also a reaction to the Han effort to stamp out the yeah. ethnic uh, independence of, say, the Tibetans or the Uyghurs. What percentage of the Hans represent of the billion four Chinese? Is it, is, or the uh, it's a really? high percentage, yeah. and I don't know the exact I guess 80 to 90%. Okay, yeah. so it's the dominant culture. Absolutely. Yeah, that's okay. right. That's right. And, uh, and they're taking that large Han population and they're, and they're physically moving them into Tibet and Xinjiang so that they, if they don't already, they soon will outnumber the, the, the native local populations. This is one of the most interesting things about China is the sort of internal invasion of ethnic areas by the Han in order to neutralize the strength mm -hmm. of, of these uh, ethnic hierarchies. And it is... Um, in the, in, the, in the case of the Tibetans, it's an absolute tragedy because they're eradicating the Tibetan culture. They're prohibiting uh, people from speaking Tibetan or being taught Tibetan in schools. And you wrote a very well-reviewed book on Tibet. I did, yes. What, what was the title? It was called uh, Tibet, the Unfinished Story. And it's on Amazon. Yeah. Right. And the reason that I called it that was because the resistance in Tibet is so strong that you can't really say that this effort by the Han and by Beijing to stamp them out is going to succeed. Mm -hmm. We may have a few more chapters of this struggle. Mm -hmm. Well, what are China's military strengths now? I mean, what are they, where do they stand both regionally and, and, and globally? I think their greatest strength is uh, the fact that they have this strong economy that they have used over the past two to three decades to uh, both grow their military forces quantitatively uh, and particularly in the high technology area. So, that, for example, in, in my background in the Navy, they're building some very impressive multi-mission ships. Uh, they've integrated the uh, PLA Air Force and Navy operations so that they use uh, Air Force assets in order to support naval campaigns. Uh, they've grown a very impressive, very large missile force that can threaten us any place inside mm -hmm. the... Uh, the first island chain and even a little bit outside of that. So uh, they've done a great deal to expand their military capabilities uh, beyond simply the, the peasant with the rifle in his hand, which is what it used to be. We, uh, we talk about the size of our Navy. What's the size of our Navy compared to their Navy? Oh, our Navy is about 280, 285 vessels yeah. with an ambition of growing to a stated goal of 355, and now the Chief Naval Operations is saying, yes, and that's a base we need to have even more. Uh, as 
we've spoken that my sense of that is the that bu the budget's an issue. The budget's a big issue, yeah. and, and yeah. Uh, remember, in order to do that within the Department of Defense, it's a zero sum game. So if the Navy budget grows, generally the Army and the Air Force are going to have to have somewhat smaller budgets. They're not real happy with that. So yeah, I'd like to see the Navy grow from uh, to three fifty five and beyond. But by twenty thirty, for example, we're not even going to be anywhere close to that. Yeah. We may be at 300, 320 ships. The Chinese, on the other hand, today have close to 400 ships, and they will be growing by 2030 to uh, about 530 ships. Yeah. And, and their advantage is those ships are concentrated in the South China Sea and the, the Western Pacific and Indian Ocean? Yeah, uh, indeed. And, and, and the point is that these, the lines of communication between China and what could be operational areas, areas where there might be conflict, those lines are very short. So they're able to deploy quickly. They can mass their, their ships uh, very quickly. And we're operating from 8,000 miles away. Not easy. Mm -hmm. there, are some, there are some uh, disadvantages of the Chinese Navy. Um, and really, there are two of them. The Chinese are very weak on anti-submarine warfare. Uh, they, are, they don't seem to be able to to um, engage us on that level, and um, I guess that's probably the main the main weakness. Well, the other one is that they, from a ge geostrategic sense, they're hemmed in by the first island chain. Well, that's but from Japan down to Ryukyu's to Formosa, Taiwan, uh, the Philippines on around to Indonesia and and Vietnam. So the Chinese are going to have to break through that barrier, if you will in order to get out and approach the rest of the world, both in commerce and trade, and also in any, any military campaign. And they're, they're very open about their intent to take over the first island chain and push us out, and keep us farther away from the coast, and then engage us in the mid-Pacific rather than the western Pacific. Mm. And that's the reason why Taiwan is so critical, mm -hmm. because Taiwan is a large, important island in that first island chain, in the 1950s and 60s, we used to call Taiwan the unsinkable aircraft carrier. And uh, it could be a base for U.S. operations to prevent the Chinese from breaking out into the Western Pacific. And that's why Ch Taiwan could easily become uh, a focus of conflict uh, going forward. I'd, I'd like to get back to a point that you raised, Bill, which is that uh, uh, the Chinese are going to be fighting a con conflict with us essentially in their backyard. They'll have very mm -hmm, relatively mm -hmm. few forces out, outside uh, Chinese waters. Uh, so they're going to be concentrated there with their whole Navy. The United States, on the other hand, has worldwide obligations. And even if we had to come up and, and fight the Chinese, we're not going to be able to put all of our Navy into that. We're going to have to leave some forces in Europe, some forces in the Middle East. Otherwise, you're going to see that's per the perfect time for Russia, for example, to take, make its move against the Balkans or against the rest of the Ukraine, mm -hmm. or for Iran to, to try and close the, uh, or take control of the Strait of Hormuz. So we're going to have to guard against that, which limits our ability to put all our forces against this huge force that we're going to be confronted. And that gives the Chinese a four-to-one advantage uh, mm. in the South China Sea, in the East China Sea, and uh, in the areas contiguous to the Chinese coast. And they have air bases and missile launching platforms and missile inventories all throughout the Chinese mainland, they're going to make it really hard for us to operate close to them, which is why I say we shouldn't do that. How are we responding? I mean, what is the, where are we, Steph, you want to, either well, one of you, I'm, 
we, what do we, we have? We you're, have. You're, you're making me a little nervous. making you nervous. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all of us nervous. I tend to have people on the show who make me nervous, yeah. and you're, <laughs> you're succeeding. The world is not the way yeah. we'd like it to no. be. <laughs> I, I think the most important thing is, is that this administration, unlike previous ones, has started to think about it and talk about it publicly. There's, there is a growing realization within the U.S., uh, both publicly and within the government, that this is a real threat and that we're going to have to think about it and, and solve this problem. Now, we haven't solved it yet by any means. I think you mentioned on the last show when we were talking about this that the Obama administration refused to even let you run war games. No, they didn't do that. But, no, they, they, but, but they refused to allow us to talk about the fact that China was a, a serious potential enemy in our strategy documents. You okay. couldn't, say, you couldn't they, say it publicly. They limited uh, one of the instruments that I believe uh, it has been very effective, which is called a freedom of navigation exercise, in which we run ships, essentially from Japan down to the southern end of the South China Sea, to demonstrate that this is international water, and mm -hmm. that any ship operating in international water has the right to be there. And what I would like to see, I do ask what we can do, one of the things we should do is to take those freedom of navigation exercises and make them multinational exercises. Include the Australians, the Italians, or the Germans, the French, whoever else would like to join us, to show that this is an international waterway. Mm -hmm. And that's one way of diminishing China's prestige yeah. and also uh, diminishing their reach. But there are a lot of other things we, need, we could do. I mean, our objective here is to remain a Pacific power and uh, expand our alliances in that area. Mm -hmm. Japan, Korea, Singapore, Philippines, things Jim has mentioned. And um, we... Well, we're mentioning the positive things that Trump is doing to, to engage, but there's also some concern he's burned some bridges with some of the allies that we've well, had has. historically. Yes. What, what, what's that? Some color on that? Well, I think... It, uh, our alliances in the Far East are one of our unique advantages over China. China really doesn't have any friends. It can rely on anybody. They, they look to the Russians, for example, and they sort of tout them as this balancer. But I don't think if I were the Chinese that I would trust the Russians very much at all. No. Um, First, you'd have to get their hand out of your pocket. Yeah. So, but we're very fortunate that we're, we're allied with the other great economic power in the, in the region, Japan, yeah. with other countries like Australia that ha have an advanced military, with Vietnam, which has a strong military tradition, as we found out uh, <laughs> over, during the Vietnam War, mm -hmm. and, and that China also experienced in 1979. Uh, so China has a, has a problem when, because they're confronting a, a neighborhood which is increasingly united in recognition of China's threat and is willing to uh, work with the United States for a common purpose. And that multilateralization of the issue is very much in our favor. So to the extent that we either convince the, the allies that we, that we are a weakening power, as happened during the Obama administration, mm -hmm. uh, or that, they, that the U.S. is pulling out of, of uh, Asia, as has happened during this administration to some extent, then that hurts us. Well, Vietnam's an interesting case because they were a client state during the war with us, and now they're moving back to become an ally. Yeah. The, or am I overstating that? Well, I wouldn't say an ally, but I think we have common interests and, and okay. we can help each other. All right. And the Vietnamese have, over many centuries, uh, been 
concerned about China. The Chinese have crowded them, have invaded them, uh, have really tried to take advantage of them as a smaller country. And uh, the Vietnamese, as Jim mentioned in 19, 1979, gave China a real bloody nose up there on the northern border. Chinese tried to come across. The uh, Vietnamese army confronted them and beat them. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, Vietnam is a country that we need to develop with great energy uh, among the others. What's the Nine-Dash nine Line? Nine-Dash Line was a uh, concept that the Chinese, this Chinese communist government, uh, adapted from the nationalist government that preceded it in 1949. And it was based on the idea that China had historically dominated the South China Sea. So they drew a line around the sea and mm -hmm. it had nine dashes. Actually, at one point it had 11 dashes, but had nine dashes. And it, it showed that this was the area that China claimed as its territory. And we um, have taken the view that it's not China's territory. They never historically dominated that area. Other countries were active within it. And it was mm -hmm. directly challenged by the Philippines. Uh, I think it was in 2016, yeah. uh, 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 who claimed that uh, China had no right to claim this area. And it was their challenge was upheld by the International Court of Arbitration at the Law of the Sea conference. It's also interesting to note that Taiwan supports the Chinese claim, because it was their claim also when they, when <laughs> they had all, their when, when they had controlled all of China. So they still claim also the area within the Nine-Dash Line. But it, the Nine-Dash Line goes completely against the current principles of and long-held principles of international law, which generally say that a, a median line is going to be where you're going to put the border or a, a, merit, a maritime boundary. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's fair to all sides, whereas China claims everything. Well, they just view that as a Western invention, though, right? Yes. It's not a, it's not a, it's not, doesn't bind them. If you were to accept the nine-dash line, then you would accept the Gulf of Mexico as uh, belonging to the United States or the northern Atlantic as French territory. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's beyond absurd. Or, or I can or see the, the French. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or, or that the Gulf of Mexico belongs to Mexico because that, that's, that's the name. Just like, just, just like the South China Sea. They have naming rights. Yeah. <laughs> but, but the other problem is that it's not quite apparent uh, what China claims that the South China Sea, the area within the nine-dash line is. Is it uh, an exclusive economic zone? Is it territorial waters? Is it internal waters? They just know that they want to control everything. They call and it sovereign. It, they claim it as sovereign territory, whatever that means, because there are different yeah. different degrees of control Sovereignty. that you can exercise o over the ocean spaces, and they want to con they want to certainly have the right to control all exploration of the uh, of the marine and subsea resources. Mm -hmm. There's there's oil and gas in them their hills. And so, yeah, there's some major oil and gas deposits. And so they, they have been there, very yeah. active in, in yeah. uh, threatening and bullying other countries such as uh, uh, the Philippines or, or particularly Vietnam to prevent them from using deep sea oil rigs in the South China Sea in areas that China claims but that are well within the, the normal territorial seas or, or exclusive economic zones of these other countries. Yeah. So the, the Chinese are very 
good at asserting their 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 yeah. victimhood and their outrage and their sense of uh, being mistreated. I mean, one of the things we talked about in this book is that they use the sense of them being a victim for the last 150 years yeah. to justify everything yeah. and not to pay any attention. And they're very aggressive on territorial issues, and they have been for hundreds of years as they expanded from the borders, boundaries of the Chinese um, empire into areas that were disputed or less less settled. Yeah. 40 uh, years ago, the Chinese, 30 or 40 years ago, China passed a, a domestic law which said that uh, no one could give away title to si Chinese sovereign territory. And so whenever they go into international discussions of where these where these uh, boundary lines they, they are, point to their they, own they law. point to their law and say, see, you have to accept our, our point because we're not allowed to deviate from that because our law says we can't. We're afraid that, that, that we'd be put in jail if we So don't. we should carry a pocket constitution exactly. with us. Yeah. And, and help them enforce their laws internationally. <laughs> I mean, one of the real issues here is that we, Kissinger really began a lot of this, uh, we want them to respect the law. We want to have a rules-based international international order, mm -hmm. and uh, we want to proceed by the rule of law. And Kissinger's mistake was in assuming that if we could uh, proceed that way, that the Chinese would proceed that way, and that we would have the basis for uh, a stable international environment. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact is that they didn't and haven't proceeded that way. They will accept international law to the extent that it serves Chinese interests and to the extent that it serves their objectives. And when it doesn't, they will ignore it. And that's what they've done in the case of the South China Sea. They've ignored the ruling by the court, and they've uh, said, you know, we don't care what the court says. This is our territory. And they feel morally justified. Well, and they feel morally justified because they've been reinforcing the sense of being a victim of yeah, the West absolutely for 200 right. years, and yes. now it's their turn. And it, it, that's true, and it raises the I mean, question you, of whether the, the global system is going to work by the rule of law or by who's ever got the, the strength, the might, to make it bend in their direction. One of the patterns I'd love to have hear you comment on is China's very assertive, and when there's a conflict or something comes up where there's a disagreement, they they almost intentionally escalated to yeah. something more than what it meant to be. And then they're prone to conspiracy theories about us. Everything that happened is something that we engineered. And then they demand an apology from us. Yeah. Is that still the pattern that uh, yeah, we're seeing? Yeah, more or less the pattern. Yeah. So they want to get us on the defensive. And then they're very good at that. Uh, we, I, I think Jim made a point that's very important. I think that the Trump administration has uh, done very well with China, generally. It has uh, rejected the Kissinger typology, the Kissinger approach, and it accepts the reality of an aggressive China, which is active in cyber warfare, stealing our privileged information, restricting our access to domestic markets. Uh, they see what China's doing. The question is going to become, uh, will we get the Chinese to change some of their trading practices? Will they stop uh, forcing the, the transfer of sensitive technology to Chinese companies by Americans doing business there? Will they stop the cyber intrusions? These are key questions. And that's what's going to come up in the ongoing trade negotiations right now. And if we don't achieve those things, 
we will have really not achieved much. Well, look, we've, we've talked about that. Is it, are you optimistic that Bob Lighthizer and the team can make a meaningful? Uh, I think he's terrific. I think he's he very really good. good. Yeah. But it's not his decision in the end. I think it's a political issue, and my experience with political issues is that once they get it, once the politicians get involved, uh, right, wrong, common sense go out the window. And yeah. what I worry is that the Lighthizer and his negotiators will be able to push a, a very good, strong line for the U.S., but if the president feels that he needs to, a quick victory, he can make a lot of big concessions and, yeah. then, and then declare that he... He's a winner because everybody knows he's this wonderful negotiator. You mean you mean we're going to have another tax bill? <laughs> Quite right. <laughs> we <laughs> having just paid out we, my taxes. We, we got a headline. We got a we got a great new tax bill, and you look yeah. at it and you go, oh my goodness! <laughs> everybody gets shafted. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so that's the fear: is that he's going to want to grab a headline he by needs signing a headline. something? He, he needs, needs a, a political win, and. Uh, this could be an opportunity to spin yeah. these discussions into some kind of claimed win. And it's really questionable as to whether it will actually be a win. As we've discussed before, the Chinese are very patient. And they may figure that time is on their side, that the, uh, the longer we do this, the more pressure mounts for a public, a pump, more public pressure uh, grows in the U.S. for a settlement. And they're going to, they're like this, the, the North Vietnamese in the, in the Vietnam War negotiations. They're prepared to sit back and take whatever punishment we deal out. Short term. Because they're going to wait us the out. They're going to get what they want. If not 2020, 2024. Yes. And they're looking beyond that. Yeah. And they're looking at our politics and how we're ripping ourselves apart. Yeah. yeah. We're, now we're, now we're going to be a social. Now, now we want to be the Marxists. That's gonna, <laughs> it, it's our turn to give it a try. <laughs> That's really very sad. I mean, it, it's it's, you know, and, and the Chinese are very patient, and they they will wait us out. But we're not going to play that game. So let's let's play it out over ten years. And we're it sounds like the trigger could be something about Taiwan, or it could, is it or um, is it Korea, or is it but, uh, but me, a claim? It could be anything. It could yeah. be a it could be a confrontation uh, over one of our freedom of navigation operations. By the way. We don't just do freedom of navigation operations against China. We do them all over the world, routinely. You don't even know about them. But it's only the ones in, in the South China Sea and or the East China Sea where, you, where they make, where they make the, the headlines. But yeah. we've been doing those for decades. Uh, yes, for 60 years. But I think that it's worth pointing out the other things we're, we could be doing or would want to try to do in order to limit China's uh, capabilities in this area. There's no reason, for example, why we couldn't offer support humanitarian aid, education aid, to the Tibetans mm -hmm. or to the Uyghurs, who are a million of whom are interned in, re, quote, re-education camps in uh, Xinjiang province. The Muslim populations are becoming very distressed with what the Chinese are doing to the Islamic uh, communities in China. Mm -hmm. And I think that is an opportunity for us to say, look, maybe we can be of some help here. Uh, we also have um, um, you know, there are areas of Afghanistan where there are uh, Muslim activists who come right up to the Chinese border, and they've been anxious to come across the border and help their brethren. Uh, I'm not urging a um, 
circumstance where, which will create a military confrontation, but I'm saying that there are ways that we can divert China's attention from the East Coast mm -hmm. to the far West. We can bifurcate their command structure. We can mm -hmm. make it harder for them uh, to proceed the way they've been doing. We can sell F-16s to Taiwan, something we ought to be thinking about. The Taiwan or advanced F-16s. Advanced F-16s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, there, there are a number of things we can be doing, uh, and we should be doing. China's made no secret of the fact that if once they feel the time is right, that, they, that the balance of, of military power has shifted in their favor, they're going to invade Taiwan. And we need to be ready for that, and we need to be actively assisting the Taiwanese in getting ready. There are a number of things that they can do. I think part of the, part of the burden, more of the burden, seems to, should be taken by the Taiwanese. I don't think they're, they're nearly as active as they ought to be in, in getting ready and uh, taking the measures that, that they need to, but we can help them in that. They've been very slow to allocate the money uh, to buy the weapon systems that we have offered to them. Who is the Taiwanese? The Taiwanese been yeah. very slow. And uh, that's a real problem. Now now they seem to be waking up, but it might be a little late. Are there factions within Taiwan that feel like, well, maybe we just ought to join the other side? There are yes. some. Yeah. There are some, but the main problem here is there are a lot of opinion in Taiwan that the U.S. will help them, that they'll never let them go. Well, and therefore, they don't have to spend the money. Our, our policy is deliberately ambiguous. We say that we're going to support Taiwan uh, the implication is that, that if China were to invade Taiwan, we would help Taiwan. But if Taiwan declares independence out of the blue, that we're not going to stand behind them. So Taiwan is trying to walk a tightrope here to, to make sure that the U.S. stays on their side, but that they're able to keep the, the, the Chinese at arm's length. And uh, the past two governments have kind of shown both sides of that. The current government tends uh, to push for Taiwanese independence much more strongly than the previous Ma government. I want to talk about their ambitions outside their immediate geographical area, but one last thing. There was a very interesting article you sent me about tactically how we might engage militarily with, uh, with China that wouldn't be an air-sea war, it would be a something using mines and submarines, uh, which would be a very clever, very effective, low... low uh, have the advantage of not placing us on the mainland yeah. and taking yeah. them on it, in the ocean. It's part of what's generally called either an archipelago concept or uh, um, distant control. And so it, it says that we should not put our military forces up close to the Chinese coast. It's just far too dangerous. It would take mm -hmm. us a long time to beat down their forces. Uh, but the, the people who are the... the Elements that could operate very effectively there are mines, always. Uh, put them in their commercial and, and naval ports, and you'd have to lay the mines by, by submarines or from aircraft. And then submarines can operate extremely well throughout the South China Sea. It's, it's a difficult region because it has a lot of shallow water. It's mm -hmm. harder for subs to operate, but they're very effective. And uh, the point would be you would, you would take on the Chinese, the PLA Navy, as well as their merchant fleet. And so you could put enormous pressure on, on China's economy, bring it to its knees uh, by stopping the import of energy oil, uh, stopping the, the import of, of natural resources and the semi-finished goods and components that the Chinese need to, to integrate and then resell abroad as their 
has all of the so computers this is, and machines. This is that we'd be using what Steph has referred to as of the three warfares. I mean, we would be using the economic pressures in addition. Well, it's, it's, more certain, than, it's, not, it's more, it's more yeah. than the three warfares. In a certain it's, sense, it's the kinetic side. Of it. In a certain sense, we would be with submarines laying mines uh, adjacent to the coast and near to the ports. It imposes a psychological pressure sure. on the Chinese. They don't know where those submarines are or how many mines have been laid, or whether they can get in or out. And that psychological pressure is very important. It's an important part of the, the equation. That, uh, and I think we need to support the, the effort with strong public relations and, uh, and, and, and legal arguments that say, hey, this is entirely mm -hmm. appropriate. Mm -hmm. And that effort would be, with the submarines and mines, would be combined with a surface blockade outside the first island chain, so that China would we can use our surface ships because you would need that in order to, to actually run the blockade, to, to administer the blockade. And it takes a, a, a surprisingly larger force than one might expect. I have some experience doing that in the, mm -hmm. in the Adriatic against, well, you, you against Serbia. You, yeah, you had one of your commands was yes. in the Pacific. Yes, well, it was, it was in the Adriatic doing the, uh, the blockade of Serbia, Montenegro, and Croatia to keep, right. to keep weapons and oil out. Uh, so it's, it's hard to do, but geogra geography favors us in that regard. We have just perfect choke points that we can uh, we can use to channel Chinese shipping and then stop them and, and search them and seize their vessels, uh, turn the cargoes around or whatever. Uh, and so that's a part of it. And the great part about that is that it's farther from China's coast, so they can't use their their aircraft and all of those missiles. Mm -hmm. It's harder to get to it, and we can we can hurt them without them getting to us. Hmm. And a key thing of this is that. We don't want to provoke them into a f shooting war. Mm. What we want to do is compromise their ability to carry on the way they are and draw them closer to uh, the table for a discussion. Yeah. And I think that these, these steps that you are outlining are, are designed to do that. But if they flip into a kinetic exchange, into an actual shooting war, that's something we, we would need to address uh, at that time, I guess. I, I don't have a crystal ball, but frankly, I think the way things are going, that we ought to expect that by 2030, there probably will be an invasion of Taiwan. Oh. Hmm. So unless something changes. And then President Beto O'Rourke will... Uh... <laughs> Whoever. <laughs> Whoever. Yeah. Uh, and... Uh, I want to let's let's talk about one belt, uh, one road a bit. What 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 is happening outside of this immediate area of conflict we've been talking about? What are their global aspirations? One belt, one road is a very imaginative and well financed program that China is using to build bridges, roads, um, and facilities across Central Asia and all the way up into Europe mm -hmm. in order to allow those countries to. Um, purchase Chinese goods to, trans, to transfer those goods uh, west to Europe and then to take European goods and transfer them back to China. It's a, uh, it's a very uh, dramatic process. It's very expensive. Uh, it has generated a fair amount of resistance among local governments mm -hmm. who are fearful that China is taking over local co commerce and manufacturing. It, the, yeah, the, the, the one, 
one road is a takeoff on the old Silk Road from Marco Polo's time. It's now called, the, it was originally, it was then called a few years ago, the New Silk Road. And that was the land bridge to the Middle East and Europe. So they were built, they're going to build pipelines, they're going to build railroads. It enables China to get a more secure source of uh, natural resources and goods so that they're not subject to this American naval blockade. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it's combined with a maritime element, which originally was called the String of Pearls. And it's a series of bases or port access agreements all the way along uh, Southeast Asia, India, Sri Lanka, uh, Pakistan. Pakistan, Iran, into the Middle East that would allow Chinese industry to get in there and government or political influence follows trade in this case. And so China is using these huge construction projects and investments in order to increase Chinese influence throughout East Africa. They're, they're really there in force. And it's working very well for them. As Stefan said, it's not without tension. There are problems with the way China does this. But the idea is, just, is, is actually absolute genius. But they don't really care about the tension, do they? I mean, they're making progress and they're getting some friction, but they're, they're moving ahead. That's generally correct. I don't think they, yeah. that's not going to stop them. They try to deal with it on a case-by-case -case basis. Yeah, I don't think they're feel, I don't think the shaming thing works with them. They're, they're, going, they're going right ahead with They have this. a very mercantilist approach where there's a winner and a loser. Trade is not win-win. Somebody comes out on top. And, and they want to come out on top in all of these arrangements. So they're taking, uh, they're, they're taking money and investing in bad investments, losing money on these things. But at, in the end, they're still the guys sitting in the front office that are running things. Yeah. They're willing and they're to doing, lose money. They're, not only are they doing it in the Indian Ocean littoral, but they're now into Central and South America. And so, West Africa. And so line of action for people listening to this, what should we be doing? We need to wrap up here. What what should American people be thinking about well, this? Well, in the first and, instance, we have to be acutely aware of what the Chinese are doing. We yeah. have to be aware of the extension of influence that they're they're doing with this uh, one belt one road uh, program. Um, sorry. No, I was going to say that, that I think American business needs to look beyond the pot of gold at the end of this Chinese rain, rainbow that they've been chasing for so long and realize that even if they get short-term profits, in the long term, they're going to be uh, uh, weakened by, by subjecting themselves to these Chinese-imposed rules. And they're going to have to stand firm and say, we're not going to do all these things that you tell us to do. That there are, are real dangers in subjecting themselves to a Chinese authoritarian system. So it, there's, as long as we're having growing public um, recognition of this. But within the military, one of the things I'm encouraged by is the fact that there is a great deal of thought being given to how you, how you uh, combat China. Uh, it's not, you don't hear all that much above the surface, but if you look, for example, in professional naval publications, it's all over the place. And that's fairly new in the last few years. Yeah, very, That's very a good so. thing. And I think that the, this administration and whoever follows them have to be uh, very constant in maintaining the U.S. position, not giving it away all the time for short-term political gain. Well, well, in this sense, uh, I think Trump is being smart about jawboning American business to yes. not close plans or do this or do that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, my free trade, free market friends, oh, it's terrible, we shouldn't be interfering with the act activities of the marketplace. But 
I've talked about this before. The average CEO is in the job about four or five years. They've got to make their numbers. They're not thinking 25 years out. They've got to make their numbers. So their incentives are to make short-term deals. Sure. Yeah. That's money in his bank. And this is, yeah. him. This and is that's his real retirement. And then, he, then that's, it's not and his problem anymore. He's sitting yeah. This is a real problem for us because uh, this is not the problem of dealing with China is not something which can be solved. It has no. to be managed. Yeah. yeah. And what we're doing is suggesting ways in which you can manage the China relationship with a view to gaining a certain advantage at some point. That is really, I think, the most productive way to look at it. Yeah. We, uh, I love that. Managed, not going to solve it. Not we solved, need to manage it, managed. and we need to take a constructive long-term view and get yeah. all the players yeah. engaged, right. government, business, yeah. et, et cetera. And if business can't be part of that, then we'll have to do it another way. But we have got yeah. to manage this thing. Yeah. It's certainly yeah. the U.S. We ought to make clear, we're not proposing that we, we stand up and go toe-to-toe -to -toe and, and duke it out with the Chinese. I'm not hearing that. Yeah. We, we want to have, have peace with China. It's in both our interests. Yeah. But we have to be able to do it on, a certain, on certain terms. And to the extent that China keeps trying to tilt the table in their favor, we shouldn't allow them to do that. Last word, Jim Stark. Steph Halper. Thanks again for joining. Uh, to be continued, we'll wait for the okay. next the next headline, and we'll have some some fresh uh, fresh stuff to talk about. If you uh, if you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to the Bill Walton Show on iTunes or YouTube or all the other major podcast podcast platforms. And uh, this show has been about China. We'll have other shows coming up, and uh, welcome you guys back. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.